Turn with you now to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16, beginning with the first verse. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. The people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? Also Moses said, This shall be seen where the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass... As Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up in the evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost in the ground. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered, some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who had gathered much had nothing left over, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's needs. And Moses said, Let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each, one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord had said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath in the Lord. to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my law? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day, and the house of Israel called its name manna. And it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt.
And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna forty years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of Nephilim. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, whenever the word of God comes and we do not understand it, we do not benefit from it, the problem does not lie with the word of God. We know it is perfect. We know it is clear. We know it is sufficient. We know it is straight indeed from your hand, from your lips. But Lord, the problem is with us, with our own lack of attentiveness with our own sin, with our own distaste for the good things of the Lord, and how we pray that you would indeed grant us a taste for the things that are good, that you would grant us vision, sight, that we might see that which is true and good and useful. And in all these things, O Christ, is not mentioned by name, that we would see this entire chapter is about the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. So, this evening we come to Exodus chapter 16. The context is that little section of the previous chapter that we last dealt with, in which the people complained about their lack of water, in which God turned these bitter waters of Mara into sweet and pure water, and then thereafter granted them this abundant provision of the twelve wells in the wonderful paradise place of Elam. And one would think that having seen God's goodness and his power to provide for them and his will and and mercy in providing for them so recently that they would never again complain. That was it. Well, we'll never complain again. That's all behind us now. But unfortunately, that is far, far from the case. In this very next section, in the very next verse, save one, they are back at it. Exodus 16, or 1, and they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. So we're 45 days into it. And this is complaining incident number three, I suppose, depending on how you count it. And this time it's lack of, first it was lack of, of apparent security, now it's la- then it was lack of water, now it's lack of food. And the subject of this chapter, of course, is God's response to them in manna from heaven. Now, of course, there are various dimensions, as we're going to see, to God's provision for them, and there are many, uh, many, many interpretations that could detain us for a long time. But the central thing here, and I am reminded of the need to make sure that we get the central thing. That's why this little little plate is here on my side, not yours. It says, sir, we would see Jesus. And the point is that throughout the word of God, the great subject of it is Christ Jesus. The thing that's going to fix your problem, the thing that is, is, is necessary for you to see if you're to worship God, if you're to obey him, if you're to be blessed now and forever, is Christ. And friends, he is everywhere in this chapter. And I hope that you can see that. I hope, as we've read from John chapter 6, you see those elements in there. John 6, 58. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Because, friends, that's the reality. The animals can store up things for winter. They can make physical provision for themselves And then they die and are no more. And people in this life can make material provision for themselves and even for others. And yet die and face the judgment. The kind of provision that Christ gives to us in himself is comprehensive and complete. Able to save not only body but soul from hell. And to grant us everlasting life in eternity. And in these things, we should recognize that what we see in this provision of God in manna is actually Christ coming down from heaven to be our perfect provision. 
So the title tonight is Christ, the Bread from Heaven. Christ, the Bread from Heaven. There are four points. First is the people are unworthy. Second, God is good. Third, the people fail the test. And fourth, God gives a memorial. The people are unworthy. God is good. The people fail the test. God gives a memorial. Well, first of all, the people are unworthy. We've read verse 1 and verse 2. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Well, what they're saying is that our situation right now is so terrible, it would have been much better had we died back in Egypt. And they go on to say, When we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Now let me just first note, almost in passing, that they are out of touch with reality here. They may remember the pots of meat and bread to the full at some point in their past, but that is a very, very selective memory. They are pulling that out of a list of thousands and thousands of memories of their situation in the land of Egypt, and they have cherry-picked these from probably the distant past. I doubt that that was the case in the recent past, because the reality for them in recent days is that they were chattel slaves, under taskmasters who had whips and scourges, and their main ambition from day to day was simply to fulfill their quota without being punished. And this was all under a master, Pharaoh, who is the perfect embodiment of, or type for Satan, who fully intended to weaken and kill the nation as much as he could. It was a substitute for throwing them into the river, just uh, working and beating them to death. That was their situation in the land of Egypt. Now that, friends, it tells you how selective the human memory can be, how extremely short, the, uh, how extremely selective on one way and extremely short in the other, forgetting how God in his goodness had provided for them so amazingly. The greatest miracle that had happened from that point to this day and still one of the greatest in all of history and all the other signs and wonders which he performed and he just performed this wonderful miracle at Marah And they've forgotten it already. They remember pots of meat, which is probably an exaggeration from the distant past. And they forget God's amazing provision from the very recent past. What is is up? Well, let me just say, I'm going to probably say a little bit more than that, that this is one of our great problems in life. Uh, our, Our memories are fallen. Our memories are fallen. We can't really trust them. And therefore, if God gives us any little provision... In order to help us, we should seize upon it. Because given to ourselves, we will also have such selective memory. I'll I'll pick that up in in a bit. Anyhow, that being said, it is very true that they have nothing of their own. They're they're not walking around with great uh, resources on their own. That is very true. And we should keep that in mind. They bring nothing with them to this table. They're out in the the middle of nowhere, having only the living God, uh, or they die. And friends... That is something that uh, is, is a right thing for them. And this is no problem. Had they come to him humbly, presenting their request in faith, trusting that they would receive good things from his hand, but they don't. And that's the real problem here. The real problem is not that they don't have anything. The problem is that they're complaining. And this is a great sin. Magnified indeed because this last time of God's provision has been so recently. And I think that God would be just as just to rain down fire and brimstone as much as giving bread from heaven. What did they deserve, friends? Complaining and, and, and saying, and, and worse than that, think about the nature of the complaint. It's comparing unfavorably what God has given to, compared to what Satan gives him, what's in the world. That's, that's exactly what Satan does. As he speaks to Eve, he says, you know, look at this good thing that God has denied you. He's given you nothing. Don't you want this good thing? And Eve says, yeah, you're right. God is is a miser. 
And you're, you're right, I should, I should take this other, this good thing that you, Satan, are going to give me instead of the, the miserly provision that God gives. That's risable. That is, that's wickedness. And God would be right to strike them down for such things. But to add to it, to add to it, they add this element by which, have you brought us out into this wilderness to kill us? Basically, calling into question not only the goodness of God and his provision and ability to provide for us and comparing it unfavorably with Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a better provider for us than you. But then to add to it, and actually you're planning on killing us. When the whole point, when God's point of sending them the Redeemer, Moses, was to save them. He says, you're trying to kill us. Friends, If at that point, the fire and brimstone that that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah had appeared, no one on this earth could could possibly raise an objection. That would have been right. That would have been just. And that's what's so amazing then when we come to our second point. Let's just say, first of all, the, the people are very unworthy. If God gives them anything except judgment, they are unworthy of it. But how does he respond? We find out that God is good. Very good. Because that's not what he does. He doesn't rain down the fire and brimstone. Rather, in verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. At this point, not even a word of rebuke, which they so richly deserved. Not even a minor display of, of, of discipline. But rather, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. If, if that doesn't reach you, if you don't feel something there, you're, you're missing it. How amazing that he should respond at all and then so graciously. For not in vain does the scripture say in 1 Corinthians 10, Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. They're speaking of these people, speaking of in other times, and we'll see them, at other times, this is exactly how God dealt with his people when they tempted Christ concerning his ability to provide, when they complained against God precisely as they were doing there, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Well, that God, instead of doing that, should say, I will rain bread from heaven for you is amazing. And let me say, if it were even a token gesture, if he had sent them some sort of token provision, that would have been a wonderful thing. But I want you to see also that it was a comprehensive provision. Because this is the goodness of God. Goodness in dealing, in responding so, so wonderfully to an unworthy people, worthy only of judgment, but also in the comprehensive provision. He says, verse 8, Moses said, This shall be uh, seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints, which you make against him. Now, even today, we, rec- we typically will have a more full thing at evening um, for, for dinner. I know that's not everywhere in the world, but more often than, than not, we have a more substantial meal later on, and that's what God gave him, quail to eat, meat, real meat. And in the morning, bread from heaven, comprehensive in every way. Everything that could possibly be needed or desired by the human body is provided in these things. Now, he could have simply had given them the manna, and that would have dealt with it anyhow. And he could have given manna that didn't taste good, and that would have dealt with it. But in his goodness, he gives them these things, precisely that which anyone would need or want, in abundance, and it's good. Both bread and meat. And in all these things, let let us be reminded that Christ is the perfect provision for us. There is nothing, nothing that we need Nothing that we want that is not to be found in Christ. If, if you have a single unmet need of, of any kind, a real need, and you can't find it in Christ, there is a problem. Because Christ is utterly comprehensive in what he provides for his people. I'll say a little bit more about that later. Anyways, it's comprehensive. It's both bread and meat. As I say in verse, uh, the meat, verse 13, so it was that quails came at evening and covered the camp. God could send frogs and flies and all manner and, and, uh, and those consuming uh, locusts on Egypt because he intended to destroy, to judge and destroy the Egyptians. And nobody wanted to eat these things. 
Nobody wanted to eat the things that were sent as a plague upon the land. But God sends them a delicacy in the, the way of quail in order to be a blessing to his people. He's able to do that. And then bread in the morning. And this is, I guess, the, the focus is on this. In the morning, the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost in the ground. And incidentally, even now, the mere existence of frost, especially in a dry and thirsty land, reminds you of the goodness of God. He's able to send moisture even into the most desolate of places, and there are reminders of God's goodness and the frost and the, uh, the dew that is there in the, the morning. But in this case, he leaves behind this wonderful provision of manna. Now, by the way, the name manna comes from the Hebrew word what? What is it? And, and so they, when they saw it, they said to one another, what is it? And that's, in essence, the name they gave it, manna, manna, for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat, bread from heaven, Sarah for them. And I want you to see, not only is it comprehensive in, the, in terms of it being both uh, meat and bread, but it's a full provision for everyone's needs. Right? Because that's another way you could complain against God's provision. You could say, okay, well, it's great that it included both meat and bread. But there's a lot of people, probably a couple of million there in the desert. And more than likely, some of them didn't get enough. And that's normally the problem, isn't it? Even if we have a banquet one for another sometimes, not everyone gets all that they need. Well, in verse 16... This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather according to each one's need, one omer for each person, according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered, some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. It is so perfect. If there was a need... It was provided for. Every man, that was the work given to the man in this case. The man typically is given the work outside of the home. And they didn't have the typical sort of vocation so much. But their, their job was to go and to pick up this provision that God had given. And it was found that it was precisely what was needed for every household. How amazing. Every man had gathered according to each man's need. And what the Lord expected them to do this was, uh, you know, so here's, here's the physical provision. It's comprehensive, it's complete, it's full in every sense. But it's beyond that. Even here in, in this passage, we don't even need to go to John chapter 6, but God is pointing them beyond itself to spiritual things. Because, again, that's the issue. Spiritually, is the, that's the problem, the heart of the matter. He wanted them to see in verse 12, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In verse 6, you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Verse 7, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. God was showing them himself in this provision. He was showing them the reality of his goodness. He is the covenant God. He is the one who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and he is glorious. They saw the glory of the Lord. Yes, always before them, in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of, of fire at night. And the glory was seen then in his provision in the bread from heaven which he gave to them. Now we know that it extends even beyond that. So we know that Christ is the image of the invisible God and whatever that they were seeing at that time, it was Christ. Christ was there. He was the one speaking to them. The pre-incarnate Son of God was the one speaking to them. But the very thing that he uses to provide for them is a type of himself. A picture which he was going to do for them in the great work of redemption as Christ came down from heaven and became incarnate and lived among us here on the ground. And he then laid down his life, a perfect atoning sacrifice that every need might be fully met no matter what sinner you might be. John 6.31 our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus has to correct them because they're just coming for the, for the physical aspect. They're just coming for the food. And Jesus says to him, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. Right? This wasn't a gift of Moses. At no point does Moses say, I will of my generosity give you this manna. 
God says in his goodness that he will give this to you. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. He's speaking of himself. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so all of this, though it was a real provision for a real need for the people at the time who were starving in the wilderness and desperately needed food and there was no other way to do it, God provides miraculously for them morning by morning in the form of manna from heaven. But he says that even that was just a picture of the goodness of God in sending me, Christ, down from heaven in order that I might provide for all of your needs. Because as we said, they... The manna and the unbelievers among them died, and there were no more. And they were judged in eternity. But those who receive Christ, this comprehensive provision of God, they will live forever. And all that, let me say, God is good. God is very good to provide us such provision. Well, we said, first of all, the people are unworthy of this great gift, but God is good. Thirdly, let me say that the people fail the test. They're not just unworthy in the first place. They go on then to fail the test that God gives them. It's not much of a test. Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. All right? So there are basically two aspects to the test. On the one hand, it was uh, taking what is as needed and not leaving it till morning. On the other hand, it is uh, belief that God will provide for the Sabbath day and not going out then on the Sabbath day resting. All right. Now, before we go to see how they do, let me tell you, this is about faith in God and his promises. Okay, if this whole chapter is about Christ, here's the bread from heaven. The reception of Christ, even in terms of manna, required faith. The substance is Christ. That's where salvation, that's where life comes from, even physical life. But the reception of it, even in terms of manna, required faith. You had to believe the promises of God. You had to believe the word of God as he spoke to you. And friends, they at least, or their representatives among them, failed on both counts. All right? Verse 19, and Moses said, let no one leave any of it until morning. Nevertheless, they did not heed Moses. But some of them left part of it till morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them, as he should be. He said, let none of you leave any of it till morning, because it is this daily bread. The very thing that we find in the Lord's Prayer is that the Lord is saying it right here in Exodus 16, as he says it in, in the Gospels, when he gives us the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Because we believe that you are able to provide for us day by day. And he says, don't leave any of it till morning. Because I'm going to provide for you the next day. And they didn't believe it. And it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. They failed that. Nevertheless, they did not heed Moses. There was another aspect to the test. In verse 23, he said to them, This is what the Lord said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil. And lay up for yourself all that remains to be kept until morning. So he says, on the rest of the days, day by day, don't lay up anything for the morning. Don't. Gather what you need for the day and finish it up. Don't leave any of it. Then on the, on, on the day before the Sabbath, gather double and definitely leave some for the next day. They don't do that either. What is wrong with these people? Verse 25, let's see. um, So verse 24, they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. That's that's his provision. So uh, ordinarily, day by day, it, it was going to stink and breed worms if it was left to the next, but not on the Sabbath day. And Moses said, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath day for the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. But look at the the representatives of the people in verse 27. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. 
And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the, the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go from his place on the seventh day. What is wrong with his people? However, God tests them on this way or on that. They fail because what's in their heart is unbelief, friends. You have to understand, if you look at this and you say, oh yeah, well, it's because it's such a terribly difficult test. No reasonable person could possibly be expected to be held to that. You've missed the point. Okay, it's not that it was such a dreadfully impossible test. It was that there was unbelief in their heart. And whether he said, I'm going to give you bread tomorrow, they didn't believe it. Or whether he said, I'm going to give you double tonight so that you don't have, there won't be any tomorrow. They didn't believe it. These people did not pass God's test. All right? They were unworthy of having Christ. They were unworthy of having this manna. They were an unworthy people. But a good God gives it to them anyways. Then he gives them a very simple test to see what's in their heart. Again, the, the Lord's not surprised. But he gives a simple test to see what's in their heart, even under these ideal, nearly ideal circumstances. And what is revealed is unbelief, a significant portion on both parts of the test. People fail the test. Well, let me say before I move on to the fourth point, that friends, you have to see this. Okay, You have to see just how terrible man is. Whatever you think of man... You, ha- you haven't thought low enough of him. Okay? I have yet to meet anyone who truly thinks, uh, has as low an estimation of himself and others of the, the human race as is actually the case. Okay? This is not, these are not the Egyptians we're talking about that have failed this test. These are God's own people that he has recently redeemed, his covenant people that bear the covenant mark. That are the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and are being led by Moses, personally led actually by the pre incarnate Son of God, moving them around the desert. And this is what they are like. They weren't good enough to merit God's goodness in the first place, and they are certainly not good enough to merit His continued goodness, friends. That is the reality of the gospel of grace. Now, sometimes God's people do pass the test. And even, even here, we will find every once in a while an occasion which God's people actually pass the test. And so it is with us. And when that happens, then there is joy and celebration. We, we root one another on. But friends, there is no one who gets through this Christian life who does not on occasion stumble. And it is not that we, in the, in the past, it was just then that we were unworthy of God's goodness to us. It is in the midst of our sin, our ongoing sin, even as Christians, that God's goodness is particularly demonstrated to us. Because some of us might even go as far as to say, all right, all right, I could imagine God being good to an unworthy people the first time and bestowing his goodness and grace and his bread from heaven upon them. But if they mess up after that point, then they're goners. But friends, that's not the God that we serve. That's not the gospel that we have. They, they failed, or at least a good number of them, even this very simple test. Well, let me say then, that forth, forth of all, God, because it's about man, and then it's about God, it's about man, and then it's about God, God gives a memorial to this goodness. It's not just that he gives a, his goodness in the first place, but he gives a memorial to it because he doesn't want them to forget. And that is so often God's way to provide some sort of memorial to help us to remember Because again, our memory is fallen. That is precisely our problem. It is not a mistake that your memory is selective. It is part of your fallen nature. You you look at this wonderful Puritan work by Boston on the, the fourfold state of man. And it speaks of all the elements of our fallenness. And the dice is loaded, you see, against God in our fallen human nature. Our fallenness means that we don't like to look at the things of God. We do look, like to look at the things of the world. 
Our fallenness means that we typically forget God's goodness and all of his word. It's so hard for us to memorize scripture. But it's impossible to forget terrible things of the media that have been burned onto our memory. And this kind of unequal distribution of memory is one of our great problems, friends. So it is with the grass being greener on the other side. We are continually thinking that it was so great, or it might be. So some of us who have come from the world sometimes are tempted to think it's better out there. And those of us who have grown up in the church as covenant children and been spared all these things are thinking, I wonder if God has withheld from me wonderful things out there in the world. And a selective observation even of the things we forget, you know, it's just like the, the advertising people. Back when cigarette, live cigarette adverts were, were legal, they would always point incredibly and unrealistically to these wonderfully fit people in their, their youth smoking away. And what you never saw was the people hooked up to oxygen tanks on their way out, expiring, not very attractive, and wishing that they'd never done it. Friends, that's the reality of sin. That is the reality That we have a selective memory that's every bit as selective as the most slick advertising agency out there. Doing the work of Satan even in our memories. So God, in his goodness, gives a memorial so we don't forget. Verse 32, Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generation. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. Now what is he talking about? He's talking about the Ark of the Covenant. That covenant, that Ark did not contain all that much. There was the, the, the law, most centrally I suppose, the two tablets of the law. The God written by the finger of God. The eternal moral law. The the rod of Aaron that budded. Yes, this pot of manna God had provided. Now it's interesting to me that the manna was going to be there that they may see the generation, future generations, in hundreds of years, could theoretically see this manna. How is that possible? Most of the manna that would remain melted away by noon. Other than manna that remained was rotten with worms. So was there special one-day manna that that rotted with worms after one day, and then the two-day manna that happened the day before the Sabbath that made it all of two days and it had a better expiry date, a better sell-by date? And then we had the thousand-year manna that actually is there for their generations to see God's goodness in future generations. Now, there's there's no particular physical quality that's different between these things. God is making this to appear out of nowhere anyways. Out of thin air, he is making this food to appear for them in the desert. And the God who can provide for them also deals with it as he wished. He is able to make it appear from thin air and either to uphold it or to dispose of it at his will when he wished. And that's a great object lesson. I hope you understand it. It's not merely and only the things that are right before us, but how God deals with them. God is able, on one hand, to make good things disappear. We reach them, as it were, a mirage, even as we did with the waters of Mara. They're looking out and they see, no, waters are there. And it turns out they're bitter. And it is only with God's blessing that they can receive of that good thing. And so it is, it doesn't matter how much we store it up, in whatever way, God can make that fall from our hands and disappear. On the other hand, with the same thing, he can make it last a thousand generations because God is God. Now, let me say the larger point is that God simply did not want them to forget his goodness because he knew what was in man. God is not unrealistic. We are unrealistic. We're like, oh, don't worry about us. We're like elephants. We'll never forget what God has done. God's a little bit more realistic and says there is no chance You'll, you'll forget this by next week. Here we are. Waters of Mara were a couple of weeks ago, and you've already forgotten this. You're going to forget. So I'm providing for you this pot of manna so that you never forget of my ability to provide for you. And it wasn't even going to be in play for another 40 years, you know, because no one needed to look at the pot for the next 40 years. Why? Because every single morning they could see it because that's what they ate every day of their lives until they came into the land. 
But God had provided for that next generation, the generation that hadn't seen these things with their own eyes, and expected, therefore, this to be of use to their very selective, weak, fallen memories. Now, how do we apply these things? First of all, let me say that Christ came for unworthy people. I hope you see how the people of Israel were unworthy of receiving anything but judgment. And so it is, friends, with us. But the good news, the gospel which I preach to you, is that Christ came to, re- to rescue. Christ came to die for unworthy sinners. That is precisely why he came. You know, Christ, what, what is amazing, even in this story in John 6, these people couldn't have been any more superficial even to the point of being hypocritical in their coming to Christ. And Christ calls them out on it and says, you're not here for me, you're here because I provided food in the miraculous uh, feeding of the 5,000. And you just want more of that. You, You want some sort of forever food situation. And he knows that. But friends, he went on to preach the gospel even to them. Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. An unworthy world, let me say. A sinful world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. They didn't really understand what he was saying. Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Speaks the gospel to them. And it's true. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And friends, if you ever hunger, if you ever desire something apart outside of Christ, the fault lies with you. You have forgotten the benefits. You have forgotten the riches. You have forgotten the depth of Christ, who is your Savior. It's not just bread, it's meat. It's comprehensive. It's full. It's according to each man's need. And number one, of course, being salvation from eternal hell. All the sins, if, if whatever sins you have committed, and you believe each and every one of those things is forgiven as Christ has paid for them perfectly on the cross. And beyond that, even in this life, there is abundant provision spiritually, yes, in Christ. But you know what he says after that? But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. He knows that. There are those back then that did not believe. There was, there was the bread of life for them. The perfect provision for them. But they didn't receive it in faith. And so it did not profit them. And so it was there in John chapter 6. The bread of life was in front of them. But some did not believe. And he didn't profit them. And what What the Lord says in the end of this in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So we have to understand not everyone's going to come to Christ. That all that the Father gives to him, all the elect from all of eternity will certainly come because God is able to do it. Even as he's able to bring quail from the four corners, perhaps creating them out of thin air, I don't know. And in whatever case, he is able to bring those quail into the desert. He is able to bring the elect to himself. And he says this piece of good news, friend. The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. I want us to see that. These wicked people would have served them right had God opened up the floodgates of heaven, not for bread, but for brimstone and fire. God in his goodness, and Christ in his goodness says, all that who come to me I will by no means cast out. That's the gospel. Christ came to save unworthy people like you and me. It's a crucial and main application. Secondly, I would say remember the Sabbath day. We didn't even get into this. There will be other occasions to speak, particularly of the Sabbath day. It's a picture of the gospel itself. It's everything you need to know. They didn't do this work, you see. They didn't, they didn't even need to do the work of gathering it, as if gathering it was some terribly difficult sort of thing. It wasn't. 
But God shows him that he gives him a rest even from that because, friend, there is, no, there is no part of our hands or fingerprints that is on our salvation. Christ does it all and he leaves no remainder. There's no little bit left for us to accomplish. He has done it all. And so he gives us a day in which we might remember. He says, you don't have to do anything. And I want to pr- you to practice. Every week I want you to practice that because I know you. I know you. You're not the greatest out there. You're going to forget, and I want to remind you of the reality of the gospel in an object lesson week by week in which you absolutely rest from all of your labors, and I simply provide for you. That's the gospel. The Lord says, remember this Sabbath day. The shorter catechism asks the question, how is the Sabbath to be sanctified? And the answer is, the Sabbath is to be sanctified by holy resting all that day even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful in other days, and spending the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship, except so much as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. And there are works of necessity and mercy, and God would have us to do that. I'm doing one of them right now. I'm working in order that you might rest. And some of us also do in different ways. fits under the headings of necessity and or mercy. But the general idea is that in as much as is possible to rest, we absolutely should. We do this because God is good. We do this because we fear the good God and seek his glory. You know that he's glorified when we keep his day? The pagans don't do it. The unbelievers don't do it. But God's people do, and he is glorified in it. And in addition to that, we need to know that God's promise is this, that your misuse of the Sabbath day will never profit you. I am, I am tempted. I'm a Presbyterian minister, but I'm so tempted. Anyone want to egg me on to do it? To say, raise your hand if God has demonstrated to you that your misuse of the Sabbath day will not profit you. Here we go. Am I the only two? No, put them down. Now let's start again. If God has ever demonstrated to you that your misuse of the Sabbath day, he will not profit. Raise your hand. true it's true friends we think we know what's best don't we and we go our own way but God is wiser than us we are but children we are fools we don't know what's good for us God does and he has provided perfectly for us and I say that as one who forgets these things all too often God is good We should remember the Sabbath day. Because on the other hand, you're honoring the day he will honor. It's not just that he will bring to naught the misuse of his day. He will absolutely bless and honor our reception and faith of his provision for us in the Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath day. Thirdly and finally, make memorials. Make memorials. I would say we're no better than these people. Sometimes I struggle in my prayers. We, all, we typically use the acrostic acts, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And sometimes our T is a little short because we are not mindful. We do not keep in mind God's goodness and the way that he's provided for us. We don't remember the way that he's dealt with us, and we need to make memorials. Right? We need to have these things. I don't, it doesn't matter how we accomplish it. It's just that we do. Prayer journals in particular, in which we list the answered prayers. Some, of course, it's all the better to put all the, the requests there so we can know to pray for those things and then to say when these things happen because more than often they actually do. And it is merely our blindness and our forgetfulness. We even forget to give thanks for these things. How much better would it be if we carried around, not in our mind, all the ways that we're miserable, like the, Egyptian, the, the Israelites, and imagining that Egypt was better than what they've got in God, but if we carried in our mind all the amazing ways that God has dealt with us and provided and answered our prayers over time, that would be better for us. And certainly it should be in Scripture, because it's not just how God has dealt with us individually, but how God has dealt with all of his people how God has given such good provision, how God has made these wonderful promises, we should memorize and meditate upon Scripture. 
It is a forgotten and neglected spiritual discipline. Not only scripture memory, and let me say that we, we, we get F uh, compared to previous generations of the church. All of us, we, we fail in comparison to what the church used to be able to do in terms of scripture memory. But beyond that, a really even more neglected spiritual discipline is the ability to meditate on a text throughout the day. But it's a good idea. Because that means that overcomes the problem. It's God's provision that we might overcome our fallen memories that dwell on these wicked things. And with all the spiritual rot that comes with it. He says we should dwell on his word. Meditate on it day and night. And we can. And also in this, finally, I would say catechism. That's, it's, it is so useful. You know, one of those things you don't fully grasp the usefulness of until you actually have it. Not that I have it perfectly, but when you have it, you recognize that this is a convenient way, a memorial stone, a little ark. It's like a little ark that contains these little things. And there's this, instead of a whole chapter here you, you, that you would have to memorize, instead you have this little manna bit. It's like an answer to a catechism question. And there in brief form, you have all of a sudden all the, the, these good things that are encapsulated in that particular truth. We should make these kind of memorials, have them, and make use of them. Well, let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we are thankful for your goodness because, Lord, we see our unworthiness. We see our unrighteousness. We see, and these are people of times gone by ourselves, who are so forgetful, so negligent, so liable to have selective memories of things, and yes, Lord, to complain. We are not worthy of the slightest of your good things, yet to such a people you sent the Lord Jesus Christ. You sent the bread from heaven, sent him to an unworthy people, and Lord, we confess ourselves to be precisely that. And Lord, not just a halfway provision, not just a halfway salvation, but a complete and total provision Full salvation for all that ails us and all that we need is to be found in Christ. Lord, how we pray that we would embrace him in faith. How we pray, Lord God, that we would not turn away to things that do not profit. And Lord, particularly that receiving Christ in faith and being washed anew and receiving from him anew this bread and meat and drink that gives us everlasting life, Likewise, Lord, we should remember the Sabbath day, which is a picture of these things, a means indeed of these things as well, that we receive a reminder of the gospel. And Heavenly Father, that we would ourselves have memorials so that we'd not be quite so forgetful in this coming week. And Lord, we would be joyful and thankful rather than complaining and meditating on the goodness of God and his wonderful provision for us in Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.